So many people at organizations are good people who want to do the right thing, who have maybe heard the message of, you know, who am I as uh, a person not in that marginalized community to ever question the experience of that mar marginalized community. You know, it's a, it's a nice get out of uh, ethics free card, but people have that. People have that mindset. Or people say, you know, I, all I need to know is that these words cause angst, cause discomfort among people who I'm sympathetic to, or I personally know in general, I'm in favor of, you know, the uplift of marginalized communities. Better to be on the side of not, you know, inconveniencing, not um, insulting them. I mean, there's so many heuristics or off-ramps to not get involved, it's sometimes a wonder that anyone shows any bravery at all. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest, whose voice you just heard, is Mike Pesca. If you are a podcasting aficionado, Mike probably needs no introduction. He is the creator and host of The Gist, which is, according to reliable sources, the longest-running daily podcast in podcast history. I'm going to tell you more about Mike in a minute, but first I need to do a little housekeeping. The first item is to say that the paperback edition of my book, The Problem With Everything, uh, is out in paperback this week, February 22nd, as a matter of fact. That's 2-22-22. How's that for a nice pub date? Uh, it includes a new foreword that I wrote just for this edition, uh, reflecting on uh, what's happened um, since the hardcover came out. Not all of what's happened, but a little bit. It's quite a bit happened. Right now, if you join the Patreon for this podcast at the $20 a month level or higher, you will get a personally inscribed and signed copy of that paperback. I will sign it for you um, or for whomever you like. Uh, it makes a great gift for that problematic person in your life. So um, go to the Patreon at patreon.com slash the unspeakable and find out all about that. The second item is that my next personal essay and memoir masterclass on Zoom will be starting on April 4th and run through May 23rd. It will run for eight consecutive Mondays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern time. This will be the third round of Masterclass I've done on Zoom. And I have to say, I was a little skeptical at first because I used to do them in person, uh, but they are working out extremely well. Some really wonderful people have, have come along. Uh, and um, I, I should add that even though this is a class in personal writing and has nothing to do with the podcast uh, per se, I'm having more and more people come in because they appreciate this podcast and the kind of conversations we have here, and they want to learn how to write with an emphasis on intellectual honesty and risk-taking. So while this is not a workshop having anything to do specifically with heterodox thinking, uh, although I have been thinking lately about what such a thing might look like, um, the workshop has become a place not just for talking about writing, but talking about ideas in and of themselves, much like we do here. So if this interests you, go to daummasterclass.com and learn 
more about it and how to apply. The application deadline is Friday, March 18th. Okay, this week's guest, Mike Pesca, for seven years from 2014 to 2021, Mike Pesca hosted the political commentary show The Gist under the aegis of the Slate Media Company. He did somewhere around 1,400 episodes and grew an enormous audience. Uh, that audience accounted for a significant portion of Slate's revenue. Exactly a year ago, uh, a year ago this week, Slate suspended The Gist following an office meltdown over a race-related, actually a race vocabulary-related discussion on the company's Slack channel. This led to a seven-month investigation that made Mike yet another high-profile casualty of cancel culture. He's anything but canceled, though, and that is proven by the return of the gist, which he's doing on his own steam. Mike spoke with me about what went down with the old gist, which he calls season one, even though it lasted seven years, and what's coming up for the podcast going forward. We also talked about what makes podcasts work, how much work they entail, and what it was like for him working at NPR back when, as he put it, workplaces of all kinds came with a certain esprit du corps or jovial feeling of pride and unity in an organization. Somewhere along the way, esprit du corps was replaced by struggle sessions. We'll talk about why. And here's my interview with Mike Pesca. Mike Pesca, welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. Megan down. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so like I said, I'm amazed you're barely here at all since you work so hard. I, you do five shows a week, the mm -hmm. gist. I can barely manage to do one show a week. And as a result, I can't make things as timely as I'd like. But I think I can time this episode to be released on or near the one-year anniversary of the suspension of the gist. Oh, how how thoughtful of you! Which you was know, yeah, <laughs> you're really you're, it's really touching that you would you would hit that note. For well, me. thank it, you, it, Megan. I believe it was February twenty second, twenty twenty one. I believe that's now a national holiday, uh -huh. or, or at least a day of remembrance. Maybe that's what it should be, or at least outside parking rules are suspended in New York City. So. <laughs> Yeah, I'm the Eid Al Fatir of podcasters. <laughs> is that a guy? Is Eid Al Fatir a person? No, it's a, it's a Muslim holiday that oh. that alternate side of the street parking is suspended on. They hit all the feasts, you know, the feast of the Epiphany and feasts that like my Italian grandmother barely knew existed. Oh, okay. See, I didn't know. Yeah, Eid. if Eid Al Fatir was like a new columnist in the New York Review of Books or something like that. So. <laughs> Uh, so, okay, I know you've gone over this on some other podcasts, um, the, the sort of recent trajectory of the gist, but like a children's book that a kid once read to him again and again, let's just go over the basics. Yeah. Well, um, I, would, I would say my former, former employer said, good night, brush, good night, bowl full of mush, <laughs> good night, Mike Pesca, you need to say hush. Good night, nobody. Isn't that the last line of that book? So. Good night, nobody. Yeah. That's how the parents know it's for more. them. So, you, well, your story, as long as we're on this theme, your story started really, if you want to go way back, in deepest, darkest Peru, as with Paddington Bear. Oh, right. right. That's the, yes, really the exactly. root. It started in Peru. So it, it began with a man who had little to do with you, Donald G. McNeil of the New York Times. Had you even ever met him? Did you? 
like never never met him have since he's been uh quite supportive and is in fact a lovely guy actually i'm sure he is yeah smart guy i enjoyed reading about tomato cultivation he knows a lot he he won a deserved pulitzer didn't he this year yeah so i will i'll answer all the questions you want no problem yeah it all started with that incident where um to seek clarification about what a teenager was saying donald mcneil uttered uh, a slur the worst slur in our language and years later it came out that some people at the new york times were upset at the new york times for not disciplining mr mcneil sufficiently in their estimation and then reporting on this came out and of course anything having to do with the new york times is so compelling to everyone else in media and, and we should back up. Hang on a second. But he the reason I was talking about Peru was because this happened on a trip to Peru with some high school kids that the New York Times had sponsored. And, and Donald McNeil was on this trip. Right. This down is on, where he uttered this uh, verboten word. Down on their luck, plucky high school kids who the New York Times were trying yeah, to raise like, up by their bootstraps. Like the Fresh Air Fund, wasn't it? It, it was pretty much. It was. It was pretty. It was just charity all around. So anyway, this was put in my uh, former employer Slate's Slack channels. And I guess most of your listeners probably know Slack. It, I don't. It, you know what? I've never been on it. Oh. I don't work it. in an office. I have never. This is. I'm. You, th- you think that like a. Uh, you think it's hard for me to be in LA because of traffic. I don't even leave my house. I have not worked in an office setting like since the invention of the internet, basically. I've, I don't even know what Slack looks like. So imagine Twitter, but instead of with 100,000 or 100 million strangers, it's with 100 of your fellow employees. But many of the same behaviors that you get on Twitter are also exhibited on Slack. Now, there are channels and there are ways to be productive. And with uh, the gist right now, me and my three-person crew use Slack because it's like... Oh, you brag, brag. Yeah, it's, it's an easy way. It's an easy way to share files. But it also tends to, you know, just people sharing opinions and water cooler chat. And then you could break out into, you know, smaller groups where maybe you gossip about other people. But anyway... Okay. But it's not no, anonymous. It's not... Unlike Twitter, you can't have an anonymous account. Is that right? Yeah, right. The, the idea is uh, it's the workplace water cooler with the assumption that everything that gets said at the water cooler is productive for the workplace. I don't know about that. I do know that in-person interactions actually are a lot more healthy than anonymized Slack interactions and interactions taking place during a pandemic when no one has seen each other and given each other the benefit of the doubt in a couple of years. Those are more fraught still. So to get to my case, there is a channel in the uh, Slate Slack called Industry News, and they put news in the industry in there. And I didn't. I wasn't the one who linked to this article, but it was of great interest to the people at Slate. And, you know, the overwhelming opinion, I would say unanimous opinion on this article, but for me, is that Donald, something like Donald McNeil should be wrong. And those who expressed an opinion on the matter said Donald McNeil should be fired. And I disagreed. I disagreed internally. And I weighed, I suppose, for a second or two. Well, do I even get into this on Slack? And so at this point, I'll tell you why I did. Slack was always sold to us at Slate as a way to discuss internally topics that would perhaps sharpen our thinking on these topics, where we were an opinion magazine. And in order for the opinions that you know are public facing to be the best they can be, why not have a discussion of them internally? The dynamic with me in Slack is often there was 
um, overwhelming opinion on one side of an issue. I can think of a couple of specific ones. And then I would take part in a Slack discussion. I wouldn't always. Sometimes, you know, a lot of time I, I, I was doing a five-day a week show, so I didn't have a lot of time. But sometimes I would see a discussion and I said, I would say, oh, I disagree. I think something productive can be done from a disagreement. Maybe I could get a segment out of this on my show. Or more to the point, uh, a slate editor would say, that's an interesting point, an interesting counterpoint to what everyone's saying. Write an article on that. I wrote an article about Bloomberg's accomplishments based on that. I wrote an article that got a lot of traffic based on AOC clamoring for, and others, but mostly her, clamoring for Amazon to be driven out of Queens. Overwhelming opinion on one side at Slate. I said, no, I think here's where I think that argument goes wrong. The editors say, write an article about that. I do so. Anyway, this is my thinking about, this is what's governing my thinking about Slack. It wasn't mm-hmm. a topic that I introduced, but considering there was an overwhelming consensus on one side of the issue, I thought I had something to add. And so I said so. I said, I don't think Donald McNeil should necessarily be suspended. I was asked to explain my thinking. I did so. And of course, I can't emphasize this enough. Of course, I didn't do so by using or writing a slur. I specifically did not write the N word or N blank, 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 because I have heard that that could be triggering. And there are subsequent cases, I don't know if you know about all of them, where a professor wrote um, N blank, 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 and you know, calls for his firing and protests erupted. So I really tried to be as productive as possible with having a good faith conversation that added something to whatever, maybe the discussion that was going on, or maybe some future uh, publication or my show. That's what I had in mind. Okay. Did not go and, right. Okay. But, and it should be said just for a little background that the whole context of Donald G. McNeil saying this, it, it was, it was similar. He didn't just burst out with this word, the N word on a, on a trip with a bunch of high school kids. Somebody, it, there was some kind of discussion over a meal over when it could be used in certain contexts. If it, I can't remember the exact like, uh, yeah, I think, well, I think what it was is yeah. like he uttered the actual word to seek clarity if uh, some discipline at one of the students' high school was for saying the word or for saying a version of the word. Okay. So but, yeah. every the, every time the word has come up, it has been in the context of discussing whether or not you can use the word. Right. I mean, my, my context was my context yeah. was a little different from his context. And like I said, I thought it was, you know, I didn't say he, he's fine to use it. I, I didn't get into the racial aspects of it all. I didn't say anything like a white person could use it. I just said, I think that perhaps Donald McNeil should, the discipline that he incurs, if he is to get any discipline, should not amount to firing, given the body of his work and the nature of the offense. And I linked to an article by John McWhorter, and I did so for a couple of reasons. I mean, you, you know, John, John's great. John's he's, he's been on real, the show. This might've been your big mistake though. Yeah, it might've been. You know, because John's a linguist and John has thought about this and written about this. And also, and this is to the point, you know, affiliated with Columbia, tops in the field, he had a podcast on Slate. He was my Slate coworker. So I said, okay, if anyone, if I could do any appeal to authority or a way to introduce some expert testimony here, John would be a good one. But I guess that didn't work out. <laughs> John McWhorter is like the Marshall McLuhan of contemporary uh, discourse. It's always like, oh, I happen to have John McWhorter right here. Yeah. If that guy in the line next to Woody Allen's <laughs> head exploded upon seeing Marshall McLuhan. You know nothing of my work. Yeah. Okay. So but also we should clarify, and I think I'm right about this. Not only did you not use the N word, you did not use the phrase, quote, the N word. Right. Is that right. correct? 
That's right. Yeah, I knew not to. I want. I didn't. I very desperately in that discussion and in everything I've ever done, didn't want to offend anyone. I mean, sometimes I would say to myself, it's necessary, it might be necessary to risk offense in order to make an overall point. But usually it's distracting to cause an offense and therefore um, distracts from the overall point. So I'm not one to try to offend someone or be provocative for provocation's sake. Right. I think that's fair. Okay. So then what happened? Um, then there was, then that discussion was shut down and there was internal discussions. My show was, uh, put on, you know, suspended a couple of days later and Slate went through whatever internal processes Slate went through to get the opinions of staffers, I suppose. But anyway, there was an investigation as I guess there has to be in all these cases and the investigation I just know of the investigation, the questions the investigator asked me. I went into it thinking, well, I, I've really done nothing wrong. And so I'll answer fully and honestly. And the investigation concluded that I did nothing wrong, that I didn't break any rules or violate any policies. And uh, you know, Slate acknowledged that I didn't do anything akin to creating a hostile work environment or create a hostile work environment. And you might think that was that. Okay, we looked into it. There's nothing to be done here. Have your show back. But that wasn't the case. Because Slate concluded, and I do have to say at this point, I wasn't in disagreement with them, that Slate might not be the best place for me to continue doing a show. (laughs) How long had you been doing the show? Seven years. In fact, the gist was, and is, I think we can count it it as is, the longest running news uh, analysis podcast. So we predate The Daily, we predate all the other news shows. There are some radio shows that had a podcast version, but you're talking about just a podcast. It covers the news. It does analysis of the news. The gist has been doing it longer than anyone Wow. Else. And, and seven years. God, that's amazing. So podcasts are so still new that seven years is the longest that uh, a news analysis podcast has been running. That's yeah, people, I guess people thought it couldn't be done. And I always thought it could. Even a year before I was into podcasts early, I, I said to myself, it could be done. I just don't want to be the one to do it. I was at NPR. Life was good. I covered Super Bowls and World Series. But I got the itch to do news. And at the time, you know, Slate, Andy Bowers, who used to be an NPR employee, he lured me over and David Plotz and Jacob Weisberg hired me. And Slate was absolutely the right place for me at that time. And uh, it was it was glorious for quite a while yeah but things i think things changed and i didn't let's say when did you start to know okay wait have we interrupted the story so then okay so then they decide that it might not be the best place for you and so you leave are you devastated what happens because you've got a lot of public support behind you at this point there's been a lot of there's it's in the press i think you have all the sort of usual suspects very much defending you a lot of people Soto Voce defending you, also yeah. usual suspects. So what was sort of the, what was kind of going on in, in your midst uh, during this? Well, there, there were negotiations to how and where I would, you know, retain or to what extent I would retain ownership of the show and the feed. And I have to say, if you want to listen to the gist now, you just listen to it in the same places you always have. In podcasting, podcasting is really good in a lot of ways, but it's terrible in terms of discovery. So even to this day, you know, to this day, I'm, I'm, as I'm talking to you, I'm two weeks in. Every day I get an email or a text. I didn't even know you were back until I stumbled upon it somehow haphazardly. 
Um, and we've done so many email blasts and you know mm-hmm. a lot of press and a lot of Twitter. Just very hard for people to discover it. So the best way for people to discover it is you, if you have seven years of audience to do whatever you can to retain that audience. So you know there were a lot of negotiations uh, on a lot of uh, in a lot of different ways about how my leaving was going to take place. Did you have a sense that upper management was essentially on your side, but had their hands tied? I mean, what what was your kind of take on the on the temperature? I guess. So I do have a non disclosure agreement, and I will disclose that I have a non disclosure agreement. I think even if I didn't, I'd punt on that question. Like it, it was complicated, and I I don't I don't know for sure. But there are some things. And this is probably one of them that I can't authoritatively talk about other than speculating. Yeah. I mean, and I I have heard you talk elsewhere just about what it was like to have so few people standing up for you publicly, even though you knew they privately supported you. And I'm not even necessarily talking about people in the Slate organization. I'm talking about other journalists, people, you know, in, in, in the media. I mean, did you have a sense that people had your back or did you feel truly out in in the woods on your own? The greatest ballast I had was all of my friends and professional associates and people I've worked with, so many coming out to support me. But of course, a smaller slice than the ones who did that personally did that publicly, which I understand. I mean, there are people I'm very close with who I would say it is not worth it for you to come out publicly. And I think we all understand that. And some of those people gave me, you know, the most help privately. It's true. If, I mean, listeners to this podcast probably don't have to be convinced, but there's this whole line of thinking. And I read a Michael Hobbs essay about it. And, you know, I I, I guess, I mean, a lot of people say it, but maybe he took the time to write it down in the longest form and therefore maybe the most um, susceptible to criticism. Something like this idea of cancel culture, which is not a great phrase, doesn't exist. It's almost all a myth. It's something like Fox News is the war war on Christmas. And I'm not here to argue that it exists or doesn't exist. I will say that, you know, Mike Pesca wasn't canceled. I literally had a show. It literally was canceled by Slate. I mean, those are just facts. But one of the tenets of uh, the argument that there is a chill and that there is, you know, illiberal censoriousness, let's call it that, because who didn't like an 18-syllable phrase? You know, one of the arguments is that the effect is that others stay in a defensive crouch. And for every high-profile example, which I guess can be disputed, of some censoriousness uh, being visited upon them, there's 10, 20, 100 others who dare not say anything. And I just have to say that you know, that idea was made clear. There are so many people at so many organizations who would, like you said, so devote say, man, this is bad, but couldn't possibly say anything. And to this day, there are organizations and, and outlets who are friends, have vowed to, you know, do interviews with me and then have had to cancel due to considerations or fear, you know, they'll just cop to it. Yeah, you know, I went back and listened to um, you. You right after the the Harper's letter came out in the summer of 2020, um, and the Harper's letter, most of the audience knows, was a was a public statement about free speech signed by 153 
public intellectuals, 152 public intellectuals, and me. <laughs> I, it was, I thought I, it was signed I, by Valerie Harper. I never got that. No, oh, interesting. She was, a, she was a public intellectual. She was, <laughs> wrote a, she was definitely more of an intellectual than uh, Mary. Yeah. You know, but that's, she, that's, she, that's, and, she and she little Steven, yeah. they had strong headscarf games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so you actually uh, brought in uh, two people to have a debate on the yeah. gist about this. You brought in Yasha Monk, who um, had founded, I don't know if he had founded it at the time, but it was on the way. I guess, yes, he had Persuasion, which I is a, so. a big, yeah, obviously. He, uh, you know, which is an enterprise devoted to these free speech issues. And I, I believe, I'm sure he was one of the signers of the letter. You brought in somebody from the New Republic named Osida Nuavu. I'm not yeah. know if I'm pronouncing that right. Okay, and and he was definitely on the side of what you just described. There's no such thing as cancel culture. Um, this is overblown. We we only hear about this top, you know, tiny fraction of people who get canceled because they are they have platforms and they have power. And you know, he said something that that I hear a, a lot, and that it's a little frustrating. But I think he also may have a point. It's just it's impossible to measure how much of a problem this is. Like he was saying, well, there aren't any sort of rigorous surveys or studies about how often this happens. It's impossible to quantify. Right. So therefore any discussion about how real this may or may not be is anecdotal and mm. therefore um, invalid. And that, and that's why McCarthyism didn't exist. I mean, the same conditions apply. And I'm not saying that the current mood is like McCarthyism, but there are a lot of things that are cultural phenomena that we can't quite uh, put a number on. And maybe putting a number on it will be some place that we get. But I don't think that's a disqualification. You know, when the in the early days when people talked about child abuse and that these were almost never crimes reported to the police, does that mean there was no child abuse? occurring just because there wasn't a good number on it. I have, I forgot who it was. Someone made the good point. Uh, I forgot if it was N plus one, maybe we could get this. This is one of the best rebutters, I guess, who was writing about it, did say, look, if you look at how many academics there are in America, something like 20,000, and FIRE has this, they say, comprehensive list of everyone they know who got involved in being silenced for their speech, mm -hmm. it's in the hundreds which shows that as a percentage, it's a tiny, tiny percentage. Okay, I didn't know we were involved in, you know, the, I didn't know that that was the um, criteria, the, this empirical proof, but if it needs to be, I'm sure we could find hundreds of more examples. Anyway, yeah. one thing I would say about that debate is afterwards, I asked Yasha, whose side, and I'm proud of this, whose side do you think I was on? And he said, well, I know you, and I think you had talked about, I had talked about the Harper's letter in a spiel beforehand. And so I kind of knew that, that that your opinion was there really is something going on. You know, it might not be uh, the, the biggest issue in America today, which is something that is also the critics say it's just not that big an issue. But you have talked about it. And Yasha said, I know what you think. But, you know, I couldn't tell in that debate if you were on my side or his. And I said, good. That's what my role should be. And I've talked about cancel culture, quote unquote, a lot on the show. And I've really tried to be consistent, but also, you know, understanding of both sides and taking in all the arguments from those who uh, think that it's a scourge and those who just uh, dismiss it. And so, like I said, consistent is a word that I've been even before whatever befell me, befell me. Yeah. Well, you were very much moderating that debate. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that you, you, you did exactly what you needed to do there, but yeah, I mean, that's what I wanted to ask you. I mean, Aside from what ha what happened to you, you've never really been a culture war guy. 
you you don't you know you you're obviously you're solidly in the critical thinking camp you're you're not in the woke camp but you don't you've never seemed to have that stink on you of person who is obsessed with cancel culture who's banging on about it people like probably me at this point people like Barry Weiss even you know people like Yasha how have you managed to avoid that well even Maybe it's because I have a five-day-a-week show. And even to this point, I'm happy to talk about it with you and to go on other podcasts that talk about it. But I wanted to cabin the discussion and not have my show be about that. My show's always been about the exchange of ideas and the idea that you know you shouldn't back off or hesitate to ask the right and appropriate question you know, for fear of maybe offending some sensibility. But if you listen to my show all the time, my big intent was for people to say, oh, this is the gist that's always been the gist. And one day you're talking about how to pronounce Kiev, and the next day you're talking about how we're getting Jeff Zucker's uh, resignation all wrong. It's about boundaries, not sex. And the next day, you know, you're doing a two-part interview with someone who talks about story and narrative. That's all I wanted. Listen to the show. It's the same show. I'm absolutely not going to be obsessed with this. I also knew that I had some sort of obligation to the audience. I were a member of the audience. I'd want to know a fuller story what happened. So, you know, my strategy was to go on other shows like yours where I would definitely talk about these issues, but to use my show to be my show. And if the question is, why haven't I been so compelled by this issue? I just think that it's it's interesting and it's going on and we should talk about it, but there's a whole lot of other interesting things in the world, which is not to fault the people have a beat, right? And this is Barry's beat. And it's working. It's working for her, for sure. You know, I just don't want it to be my beat. How? And I don't want to be beat by it. And there's yeah, you your pull cut. You don't want to, <laughs> you don't want to be beat by your beat. <laughs> yeah. The beat might never go on. <laughs> I don't know. We've got well, the beat. <laughs> oh, yeah. Everybody. We're really dating ourselves. <laughs> well, is- who, who else is going to date us? We're going to pause here for a short message from me. Are you appreciating this conversation and wishing there were more like it out there? Well, there are lots more right here, almost 70 of them by now. I do this show every week and I pretty much do it all by myself. That is why as much as I'm loath to ask for help, people who know me know this, I am offering this gentle reminder that if you value honest, thoughtful, nuanced conversations with all kinds of people, novelists, scientists, philosophers, comedians, journalists, sometimes even just regular folks with something interesting to say, I hope you'll consider supporting the show in any way you can. One way to do this is by joining our Patreon community at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. You can join for as little as $5 a month. That gives you early and ad-free access to the show or for as much as $100 a month. And yes, people have done that. There are lots of perks at every level, including if you join at the $10 a month tier or higher, the chance to join our bi-weekly hangout where we, and that includes me, get together on Zoom to talk about a recent specific episode of the show. Joining at that level also gets you discounts on your first purchase of official Unspeakable Podcast Nuanced AF merchandise. If Patreon is not your thing, you can also make a one-time donation in any amount by going to the podcast webpage at theunspeakablepodcast.com and clicking the donation button. This podcast is a one-woman enterprise. I'm not affiliated with any institution, 
media company, secret investment cabal, or anything like that. I do it because I love it. And if you love it, or even like it, I hope you'll consider supporting it in any way that makes sense for you. Leaving a positive rating or review wherever you get your podcasts is a big help, actually. And telling people about the podcast, sharing it with friends, just spreading the word actually means more to me than anything. So thank you for listening to the show, for making the unspeakable worth speaking. And with that, back to the interview. Seven years ago, because I'm really interested and then I think about this all the time, like seven years ago, you could kind of have these nuanced TM discussions and um, that was sort of part of the job and that was like something that you would completely expect on a place like Slate or even NPR. And now I feel like if you if you show a willingness, even every fifth show to delve into some of these culture war debates, you are going to be branded as a a culture war participant just because of the kind of sensibility and metabolism of the media now, as opposed to when the gist started. Yeah, maybe right? people, and, and maybe people are really being fair about it. I mean, maybe the people who want to do the branding, maybe they've been so successful in spreading the message that there is no standing up to this. There is no internal dissent to our desire to brand. Less you do, you get branded as well. That it's like uh, an invasive species that has no natural predator. I mean, if you were, so we talked a little bit about how it was maybe very hard for people within Slate to stand up for me. If you were to be a person who stood up for me, you'd be the person who stood up for the person, Don McNeil, who was about to get fired. So play that one out, right? Don McNeil was almost fired or forced out. I ran into trouble for standing up for McNeil. Who's going to be standing up for me? The message is clear, is it not? Uh, No. Are you saying it's like a domino effect? It's a self-fulfilling prophecy? What's the... I'm saying that it's very intimidating to want to stand up for a person if what that if what the crime that that person committed is standing up for another person. Oh, I see. If the first person's crime was maybe you know seen as not a crime by everyone down the line. See, I God, I don't think of it this way. But see, but I'm I'm kind of a, a weirdo. I mean, there's also this you know this idea of having uh you know having fuck you money. Like yeah. a, a, a lot of the people obviously. They they have jobs, they have families to support, they have mortgages to pay, um, and I you know I sometimes have to check myself. I get a little cavalier as somebody uh, with with none of those things. I I sometimes forget that um, not everybody can just like you know afford to lose what little they already have. <laughs> so like I so yeah, I mean it's just I don't know exactly what I'm saying, but you know for my part I sometimes think like well I don't have fuck you money, but I have like a fuck you life kind yeah. of like well, I just, right. and you I've have your integrity forever. and yeah. you, def- you define your integrity a little bit differently maybe than some other people do but so there's a lot of dynamics going on one is who you are and who i am i mean you are a columnist and an opinion writer and an essayist and you're a lot of things when you do those but one of them is someone who kind of steps aside from the mainstream or the mob and wonders if what they're doing is right. You were prized for that. You were prized for your ability to bring surprise 
and to recognize surprise. And that has been, you know, degraded in the current media. We used to be have a surprise tropism. That's what we were attracted to. And now it seems like we have a reinforcing of narratives tropism. Like, let's, hey, let's for the 180th time mention just how bad Trump is. Let's for the 230th time make the point again that voting rights are essential to a democracy. Two two theses that I sign on to, maybe I don't want to hear that the 238th time. Maybe there's one other thing I'd rather hear or two. Yeah, I mean, and I've talked a lot about on this show about, I've talked a lot on this show about why that is. Batya Ungar Sargon, who presumably you're familiar with, she talked about how the subscription models for all these news organizations change that, you know, instead of having a big advertiser pay for a lot of the newsroom that week, you were reliant on subscribers who basically wanted their biases confirmed every day. So that's... Or, that's or you thought, happened. or the people pulling the strings thought that. I think that the bias confirmation model is a shrinking model and you you write off half your audience. Look, but it's a lot of other things too. I mean, there are there's cowardice at play, there's self-preservation at play. I, th- I also think there's this psychology, which is like, let's say in general, people more or less agreed with my specific point or the right for me to have a point, not even me. Someone gets into a contratem at an organization and someone at the organization is like, it's wrong that they're giving this person such guff that they're riding, riding this guy out on a rail and there's a mob mentality. Me- People will think, well, you know, that's while that's bad, and in the abstract, I should stand up for it. My big role in this organization, if it's a news organization, is I'm doing really important work uncovering whatever it is malfeasance, nonfeasance in the transit industry. Okay. I'm doing important work that's somewhat aside from this. Why jeopardize my work, which has value, which if I'm not doing it, whoever replaces me, the beat might die or someone might replace me worse than me. It's, you know, a general ill to society. So I think that that's going on. I think that people congratulate themselves by being, you know, decent strategists who know how to navigate the system, right? There's this mindset, hey, look, regrettable though it is, some people might think, this is how the world works and you got to accept reality on its terms. And so that's why I'm able to navigate this. And he wasn't, you know, he should have known, he should have known what the stakes were. Of course, when the chopping block comes for them, they might not be so sanguine, but I think that's going on. And then the big thing is a lot of times we're talking about you know, giving racial offense. And most of these people, or any kind of offense, you know, mo- so many people at organizations are good people who want to do the right thing, who have maybe um, heard the message of, you know, who am I as uh, a person not in that marginalized community to ever question the experience of that mar- marginalized community. You know, it's a, it's a nice get out of uh, ethics free card, but people have that, people have that mindset. Or people say, you know, I, all I need to know is that these words caused angst, caused discomfort among people who I'm sympathetic to, or I personally know in general, I'm in favor of, you know, the uplift of marginalized communities, better to be on the side of not, you know, inconveniencing, not um, insulting them. I mean, there's so many heuristics or off ramps to not get involved. It's sometimes a wonder that anyone shows any bravery at all. Well, it's just remarkable that it comes from journalists. I guess if it if it was happening in like, you know, small humanities departments of small-ish universities, I would 
believe it. Uh, but this just, it's, it's so counterintuitive to the, the, the journalism project. What kind of journalist did you want to be when you were starting out? I wanted to be a, I, you know, there are three things that I ever wanted to do, which are to be a talk show host, to be a comedy writer, and to be a, uh, to cover a sports team, to be a beat writer for a sports team. And I pretty much got to do all of them uh, over the course of my career, but in a weird way. You know, I would host Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And that was like being in a comedy writing room for the several weeks that I did that. And I was a sports reporter for NPR, which wasn't one team on a beat, but in a way it was a lot better. And now I'm hosting my show. So I'm really happy about that. But I, I did define journalism in the way I think you're defining journalism, which is, you know, tell, tell the truth and let the, uh, let the chips fall where they may. And I think now the definition of journalism is more of a, uh, afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. We've already decided who the afflicted is. So let's just go with that narrative. That's our job. Progressive activism. Oh, and you're really comfortable saying that because I think that's <laughs> true. I think that's true. But I would also, it's so easy for someone to come along and say, well, you're using a very broad brush there. Well, I mean, I would say that uh, the New York Times still has fantastic journalists who surprise me all the time. And, you know, Michael Powell write an essay that cuts across, that cuts against this general grain in the Washington Post did the best coverage of Rittenhouse that totally shaped my opinion, which wound up being, I don't think he's guilty by letter of the law. And the Washington Post, it was actually a video piece, actually proved that to me. So it doesn't mean that there isn't journalism that, you know, will step on the toes of even their ideological um, soulmates, uh, bedfellows. But the fact is, it's just pretty clear who the ideological bedfellows are. And there aren't too many crusading journalists who say, you know, I don't care who knows it, we're going to write what needs to be written. Mostly, especially in the age of Trump, we're going to do the thing we need to do to be the resistance. And then we're going to do the thing we need to do to take the right side of the reckoning. And when you get into all the pressures of journalism and the monetary pressures and where the young talent is coming from, I guess too many journalists see, think that it's hard to do anything else. Yeah, well, that was going to be my next question. Where is the young talent coming from? Because it's not coming from the same place that it used to. <laughs> well, I mean, I used to just doubt. I mean, all my life and probably your life too, you'd always hear stories about how the colleges were crazy and you'd put them in the pile of, okay, you know, the exception that proves the rule or, you know, maybe the people telling me these examples aren't, you know, telling them as accurately as possible. They're doing them they're, they're telling them with a little bit of uh, uh, mustard on their fastballs. But yeah, then I began to really see that colleges were churning out uh, thinkers of a very similar ilk. And they went into journalism, not for the ideas of telling a good story, but progressive activism. Not everyone, but you know, more and more did in a way that's different from, oh yeah, the youth are always more idealistic. The youth are always more liberal. I think that was true, but it took on a different sheen. And the idea of, well, Wesley Lowry's idea of, you know, let's dispense with objectivity. I have a lot of thoughts of that. I mean, in journalism, objectivity was never really cited as the ideal, but I think fairness was, and just humility, like maybe my side or maybe my thoughts coming in don't, maybe they need to be questioned. Maybe I should 
absolutely presents Steel Man, right? Or Star Man, as uh, I think you've talked about a couple of times. Oh, that's he, Angel, Angel Eduardo's. Yeah, he was great. I, uh, I uh, started following him on Twitter, thanks to hearing him on this show. But, you know, maybe the idea that, you know, I don't, I don't know, I'm not going to come in saying that I, I got the answer to this story. I'll just do the best job I can quoting either all sides or both sides, or maybe just one side, if it's so clear that there needs to be one side. That, as the ideal, is being questioned. I don't know that it should be questioned. I'm not going to stick up for objectivity. That's a false idea. But there yeah. is a humility, and you don't know the narrative before you go out and report it. And it's just a better exercise to let everyone have their say. And then it's not really about you as the journalist deciding who's right or wrong, at least not for the first few years. It's about giving the reader the best information they can so they decide. Is this because the business model has changed in such a way that it's a lot harder to make a decent living as a journalist than it was in the past? It's never been easy. Obviously, it's never been a high-rolling job. But the whole industry is so centered around opinion writing anyway, because that's so much cheaper than paying reporters, that I sometimes wonder if people who go into journalism now, they it's like the same people who might have just gone into the, the nonprofit world or been activists uh, in the past. Like th- there are people who can afford to do this kind of work and that's a particular kind of person. Yeah, it might be. It might have something to do with that. And that dovetails with the professionalization of journalism. So, you know, you have to go to a journalism school, which costs, what, $80,000 a year. A certain type of person does that. A certain indebted person does that. You also lose the kind of blue-collar worker who didn't think of journalism as a particularly exalted profession. But I think it's more like the people, the, the older people who are supposed to be mentors and had an idea of the right and wrong way to do it, have been. I think a bit intimidated. <laughs> Maybe it's because um, the world of journalism has gutted out that job and they no longer exist. But the institutional memory of saying something quite bluntly, like journalists aren't activists, you don't hear that message too much. And well, it's because a little they're com- afraid to say it, though. Yeah. But the yeah. people who because are there who believe that, there are just people who believe it should be it. done. And they try to, you know, denude the copy of activism, but it's really hard. And then maybe they think they're going to be on the chopping block. And it it is a little difficult because there is a long history of absolutely activists and Ida Tarbell and and Nellie Bly and activists who were journalists and did great nonfiction. But in general, you know, newspaper columnists and, and networks and, you know, CNN and MSNBC should have an allergy to activism within their ranks. And what happens is you know, if you see people who are activists on the right side of the issue, you fail to give them scrutiny. And that's bad. That's bad in terms of trust of the leaders. That's bad in terms of creating narratives about who's right and who's wrong. I would like all journalists to understand, hey, maybe these activists are on the side of the angels or on my, my side, but still they deserve the same kind of scrutiny as, you know, the people that are on the other side. Both the cops and Benjamin Crump, 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 deserve a fair, um, a, a great deal of scrutiny, I would say. It's not like one is inherently right and the other we have to be suspicious of. Maybe we've turned it around, right? Maybe in the 1970s, it used to be, oh, Al Sharpton, that guy should be looked at cynically. The, uh, the cops need to be trusted. Okay, so there was a corrective, but 
perhaps these days it's an overcorrective. Do you think there's a generational component here? I'm not talking about like the woke millennials and Gen Zers versus the rest of us, but I'm thinking of like baby boomers in these newsrooms retiring or being close to retirement. And so they would be a cohort with an institutional memory. But then there's the Gen Xers. And I've talked about this on the show before, like, you know, people in their late 40s into their 50s, you know, we're in a difficult spot because we basically share the values of the baby boomers, but we're not ready to retire. We've got to hang on for another 15 years, you know, at least. Right. And so I kind of feel like, you know, the, the newsrooms that I'm a little bit familiar with, people I know who work in these places, there's a sense that there is, you know, a kind of, you know, there are people who are kind of feel like they're elder statesmen or they're getting to be in that position, but that they are being totally overwhelmed by the younger staffers and they couldn't mentor them if they even wanted to. <laughs> and it's really not worth trying to because they it, it, like, I guess, what, what am I saying? I mean, I, I guess I wish what I maybe what I'm saying is I guess I wish more of those baby boomers who like, you know, had one foot out the door would just throw down and say what's true and maybe the rest would follow. I don't know. Marty Barron tried it and he wound up having his legacy somewhat tarnished, right? Well, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I think it probably does go on. I think that that is probably the age cohort of the defensive crouch. I think that time was, I don't know, I don't go back more than two generations, but it probably was the case that one generation passed their wisdom on to the next. And now there's been a disruption, a disruption that probably coincides with the rise of the internet, the, uh, the uh, assumption that this big newspaper that dominated the town will continue to be so. It all gets thrown into the mix. But yeah, in general, I definitely see that phenomenon, uh, not explaining all of it, but occurring. Yeah. And I, another thing people don't talk about, too, when they talk about trying to, you know, diversify newsrooms, trying to, you know, hire black reporters, for instance, you know, it, it's a pipeline problem. I would think like, you know, if, if you are somebody who is, you know, going to a certain kind of school and, you know, able to take a certain kind of low paying job that requires an internship that, you know, really you, you cannot make a, an adult living for many, many years in the beginning of that career, you are much more likely to be a middle, upper middle class white person than a person of color. Like, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I'm going to get, well, I'm not going to get canceled. <laughs> but if you are like, say, a, a working class person of color who's really smart and really hardworking and striving and ambitious, you're not going to want to go work for NPR. You're going to want to work for McKinsey, right? Well, I, you know, I don't know. I think that there, there are people, I, I really don't know about that part of it. I think that there are people who just want to be journalists and places like NPR were um, under representative of the U.S. population for a long, long time. And now there is a real swing in the other direction. Uh, it was just reported that 78% of their hiring in the last couple of years have been people of color, 22% white people. Um, so that is a big, that is a big, Correction. Um, and it also, I guess, would speak to there are plenty of people who want to do journalism for NPR. And the kind of journalism they want to do is probably the kind that you hear on a lot of their podcasts, like, you know, Code Switch or Without a Trace. And, and that begets more of that. I don't think, see, to me, I don't mind so a great uh, variety of these voices saying the things that they're going to say. 
I just would say, and if there are those within the stable of voices who are a little out of step with everyone else, you really need to make an effort to keep them inside and tell them that's okay and say, we stand for you saying stuff that's a little outside the party line and a little uh, outside a certain ideology. And that's the part I worry about. Like, do all, give me all the interesting, fascinating podcasts that are driven by Wesley Lowry's idea of let's do away with objectivity for whatever that means. But give me some other podcasts and give me some other reporting that either says, actually, I'm going to be straight down the line or says, okay, if you don't want to be objective, maybe we, you know, do the kind of story that you might find uncomfortable if, if, um, you might find uncomfortable if you're mostly a, a, a uh, progressive activist. What was it like at NPR when you started there? And what year was that? I started, well, I worked for a show called On the Media, which is an NPR show, but it wasn't with the network yes, itself. Yes, I love that show, or I used to, <laughs> Gladstone and Bob Garfield. And then I worked for a show that was there and died, a midday show called Day to Day. But from there, I was absorbed into the network itself. So I was at NPR for 10 years from 2014, um, starting in 2000, sorry, I was there for 10 years from 2004 to 2014. And it was, what was it? I, I loved it. I loved my friends. I loved the fact, I loved the, uh, the beat that I covered. I was valued. I think I was valued um, to some extent by a lot of the people there as sort of the spicy salsa, the condiment, but not the main course. It's kind, of, the, it's kind of racist, isn't it? On the it's other hand. It's just an Italian slur. <laughs> I was, Spicy yes, I, I was valued as the Putinesca sauce, but not the marinara. <laughs> um, but, and it got, it did get stifling and I wanted to grow. And it was very clear that, you know, I, my voice was valued as the change of pace in a perhaps like stayed hour of all things considered. And I wanted to do more, and that's why I went slate, and uh, I was able to, you know, express myself, and not even necessarily my opinions, just have a lot more ambition. Which, by the way, is informing a lot of the recent NPR defections. I mean, if you read the coverage of yeah. that, it's like all these hosts say, "I just feel kind of stifled there," and you know, people say, "Is there a stifling of a certain kind of host of a certain background?" I was stifled too. NPR is a lot of things, but it's not particularly nimble or ambitious. But what was it like just in the office? Was there a kind of, um, what was the exchange of ideas and jokes and humor? What was the office culture like at NPR when you were there? Oh, I think it was like really open. And same thing with Slate when I started. It was really open. You didn't have to, I ne I don't think I, first of all, I didn't say anything that I think would be offensive. Although, uh, you know, the latest examples show that maybe I have a bad barometer for what that would be. But I think things were things were pretty good, and I never said to myself, "Ooh, can't say that." I mean, let's put it this way: the office, the the head, the person who ran the New York bureau, the titular New York bureau chief, was a woman named Margot Adler, who was the biggest proponent of Wicca in the United States. She was the greatest authority, like the chief Wiccan of the USA, and she and I were great friends. And we bonded over how much you, whatever, like Bill Maher's monologue the day before. And she was like kind of wild. And 
you know, I think that she's probably, she would probably have been, she's since uh, died and is very sad. I think she'd probably be uh, a conservative's, um, she'd probably be something like a conservative person's caricature of what an NPR reporter would be. But she was a goddamn great reporter, you know? You maybe couldn't put her on every story, but she knew how to tell a story. And the point that she was was trying to make wasn't something like, look at this underlying social ill. It's like, look at this human being and this story that this human being had to share. So it was all about storytelling through people. And we were excited when we could do that, you know? And I, I promise I'll get off of this, but I just, I, I haven't had many jobs, as I said, but, you know, the times that I have worked in offices, one of the things that I've loved about it is is just being, you're being, you're with a bunch of adults and everybody kind of agrees on what's funny, or at least that was the perception, I guess I'm in a privileged position. Uh, maybe a lot of people were feeling very harmed, but there was just a sense that like, you know, you, you, you would joke around and everybody understood what was ironic and everybody sort of took things in, you know, gave people the benefit of the doubt when they made yeah. observations. And like, there was just a real sort of joy sometimes in being in the workplace. And a lot of, I feel like this is a think piece that I'm glad I'm not going to write, but like, you know, the whole genre of the the television sitcom that's based around the office that, you know, there's, there's, you know, tasteless jokes and, you know, there's all kinds of body humor and, and that just part of the sort of kind of trope of, of office life. So when did you start to notice that eroding? At Slate, for instance. Well, I, I, by the way, the piece you're not going to write, I like that idea. Like, there's really no office esprit de corps these days. Exactly. It's, tr- a, it's drudgery yeah. and it's struggle. Their esprit de corps has been replaced with a struggle session. <sighs> yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> at Slate, at Slate I, had my, I had my own show and management was pretty good, very good, I would say, about letting me pursue the topics. And when I was able to hire my own producers who were suited to the show. It was, you know, I think very intellectually exciting. And we did what we had to do in terms of uh, internal discussions to make the show better. Uh, It was tough to, it is tough to produce a daily show. And we were, I will say, quite understaffed compared to every other daily show that exists. In fact, other daily shows at Slate. Yeah. So I, for a long time, quite enjoyed it quite enjoyed the process and was proud of the product. And then, you know, things change. And I think the pandemic had a big part in that, but also management changed, um, editors in chief, chiefs, editors in chief left. As things changed, as the Democratic Party changed, Slate changed, Mm. as the media changed, the overall appetite and comportment for the joy, the general joy of disagreement that got recalibrated. I'm thinking back to, you know, the reverie about the NPR office. Look, there's another argument which goes, okay, you guys, not all guys, you know, I don't know that there was, there were, it was overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly of a similar class. It wasn't a very Diver- there, there was some age difference, but it wasn't a very diverse background in the demographic way. So right. maybe that's why you guys had such a fun time choking together. Exactly. But exactly. I don't think, you know, 
personally, we can't do the experiment where we had the diversification of today, good thing, married to the attitude of yesteryear, the more you know, pluralistic, engaging in disagreement attitude. Like we can't do that. But I do think, and if you come away with nothing else, I'm a stupid, I'm stupidly optimistic person. I do think that that would have been possible. And when this is similarly, when people talk about, well, you know, the internet is great because it did away with gatekeepers. And I always will say, we need gatekeepers. Oh, like this, Gates you are ever, beautiful things. Gates are nice. Are. They make good neighbors. You ever live next to, you know, a prison or a cattle ranch? You want a gate. The gate. It opens. They, they act like they're talking about a fence. Right. I don't know what they should say fence builders and not gatekeepers. I think they should say wardens. But anyway, so the people who say that will always say, okay, but who'd the gatekeepers keep out? They kept out women. They kept out uh, people from marginalized groups. Like, but they did. They did. And that's that part of gatekeeping needed to be undone. Was it necessary to do all? I mean, it just the the premise that you need a revolution, you need the only way to get that necessary thing to happen was to do away with the gatekeepers, as opposed to, hey, let's diversify the industry, but let's, or all industries, but let's also have, you know, some people saying this isn't going to be published, this isn't up to snuff, this needs to, you know, this needs another rewrite. Yeah, well, it's the gatekeepers have been crowdsourced. So now they're just the loudest people on Twitter. That's the, that's the gatekeeping. I mean, I gatekeeping is, is uh, a pejorative now, right? If you ever see that used. We're, we're doing oh, yeah, it over the gatekeeping. Okay, well, let's talk about how you're doing this now. So you 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 don't have the auspices of, of Slate. You're all on your own. You don't have, are, are you like a, you don't have a Substack to go along with this. Like how, no. how siloed are you in this new siloed uh, uh, creative economy into which you have now been dropped? The I don't have a Substack because... Some of these people, some of the Substack writers who do occasional foray into podcasts, but only one or two, like I think Inglacius has done a couple podcasts based on his Substack. I'm kind of the ratio in reverse. I could do some writing on occasion. I'm a broadcaster. I'm a podcaster. I'm a speaking to the mic guy. And so that's what I'm going to do. Um, it hurts me a little bit because I think that um, I think that ideas get passed around via the printed word, not literally printed, but via the internet. So I've been having a lot of segments on Rogan and Neil Young. And I think mm -hmm. that if they were all written down and printed, I'd be getting a lot of calls from networks saying, oh, debate the other point of this. If, you know, I don't, who knows? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I guess if you want to be, a, if, you know, talking heads on CNN have usually written something, but everybody says nobody wants to read anything anymore. Yeah, but it's just, just I guess talk. it's just good that it's been written. Yeah. But when was the last time, you know, a, a podcast segment went viral uh, as opposed to... I know. Well, that's why it's story. nice. If they really, you know, yeah, exactly. Because if they really, you know, unless they're really, really out to get you, they're not going to sit through three hours and wait for you to screw up. I mean, <laughs> unless, you know, that's when you know you've hit the big time. And God so, bless I mean, them if they have that kind of commitment. Yeah. So do you like have a studio? Do you have a staff? Are you doing, are you like me? Are you sitting in your, in your, in your apartment praying that the... FedEx guy doesn't come in the middle of the interview. How, uh, how are you doing this? I have a room in my house that has been made into a studio. It's a legit room. It's not a part of a closet. I have <laughs> panels on the wall that I spent, I don't know, $8,000 on. It's probably like $8,000. Something like that. I thought that. you just had to like hang like pieces of foam. Or well, this sounds a lot better. Blankets. So I, I could sit in the middle of the room instead of like huddling in a corner like a refugee. Uh, so like Tom Petty says, sit in the middle of the room. Don't be like a refugee. <laughs> and 
I got a staff of uh, three, but one of those three is my wife. So she's not on staff. She has a full-time architecture job. I couldn't have done any of this without her. It's kind of crazy. She's so good at exactly what I'm not good at, like the visuals and, and, and attention to detail. The visuals are fantastic, I think. If you look at my website yeah. and the, and the uh, tile, it's just so much better than it ever was. So yeah, I am doing it as an independent production, which requires that people, the big thing is people find me. I didn't want to do it as maybe one day we'll do some sort of premium, but I feel like then you get the people who love you and it might, I don't know, could make me more money, but I do want to try to reach all the people I can. Plus as a five day a week show, there is, you know, a value for advertisers. One show, five days a week can add up to a few hundred thousand listens given your daily audience. And that's, that's valuable to advertisers, so it makes it viable. I think more so than to do a one-day-a-week show and make it viable for advertisers, that show has to have quite a big listenership. Right. So, But are you just working all the time? Are you working 10 times harder than you did before? I did, but I think I'm going to try to, I think I'm going to try to settle to like 1.5 times harder. Like, I think we could get there. But I mean, this is the thing. And everybody, again, I feel like I have this conversation with everyone, especially in our age group. Like if if we don't have some version of your wife who can do, I don't know if she does social media assets, for <laughs> instance, like that kind of person is so necessary in order to make an enterprise like this work. And so it's like, you know, people like me, like I'm not in a position to have that kind of help yet. Maybe I'll get there someday, but it's just like incredibly overwhelming. I feel overwhelmed all the time I know. trying to get this thing I going know. and For like to, to be this age, like at our age, I know we're about the same age. I am working harder than I did when I was 25. And when I was 25, I was obsessed. I was uh, worked constantly. For one person to have a decent job, you need at least two people working on it. It's crazy. Wait, a um, decent job? You mean a decent podcast? Wait, for what did me, you mean? For me to have a job, I, oh, needed, a job. I okay. needed me and my wife to work full time on my job and hire two other people. Look, and I, you know, I'm lucky because the, the asset and the gist is valuable and it's worth things. And I have partnered with uh, Libsyn and AdvertiseCast and they want to be in business with me because I could sell them correctly so that there's this audience there. And the audience uh, is and has returned. It's harder to start from scratch. I do think we get, I don't know, I don't, I don't know what perception people have, but maybe people read all these stories about sub-stack sub success. And there are a lot of people out there who are making a lot less money and maybe even not enough money to live on who tried the sub-stack thing. And it's just not as good as a regular paying job in media. It does, it's not working out for everyone. No, and the Patreon thing too. Do you have a Patreon? No, I'm not doing any anything premium, at least for now. I want to maximize the audience. So how are your days? And uh, and like, for instance, you have you worked all day and then you had to do this show and then another one. But so like generally, how, what time do you get up in the morning? Seriously, I, th I think this is germane. I get it. So are you asking me the Tyler Cowher or a Cowan production function question? Do you know what I talk, I'm talking about? Uh, well, I, I'm, in his case, it would be like he read like, you know, obscure Russian literature in, in the right. original Russian. Right. I don't know what you I, that uh, goes without saying. But for you, you, I get you read up. good night moon in the, the original. <laughs> The, the original Belgian in, in Flemish. 
Yes. <laughs> I get up at uh, 6.40 on a couple days a week and then about 8 on other days. Depends <laughs> when I have my kids stay with me three to four days a week. So a lot is dictated by them. By them. And, you know, I start listening to uh, the BBC and NPR and reading a couple papers, preparing for things I want to talk about that day. And then I have a production meeting with the staff. And then I usually record an interview or two the day or night before. I'm, you know, if there's a book to be read or a movie to be watched, I'm, I'm doing that. Um, I'm listening to the interviews that are cut as they come in. I'm recording the spiel, which is the long part at the end of the show, and the P, sometimes around. I try to get them all done by the 5 o'clock, 5.30 hour. We're getting it so that we can turn it around and get it up there within the 6 o'clock hour, all mm -hmm. times Eastern. I think that's happened once in the, I don't know, eight days that I've talked to you so far, but it's going to happen. It's going to happen more. Okay. And so do you want to be working this hard? Really? I, mean, I know you want to get it down to working 1.5 times as much as you used to, but what do you want to be doing in like 10 years? I, this is our 50s. You're like, okay, we're in our early 50s now, and this is where we're at. Did you, <laughs> first of all, did you ever think you'd be doing this when no, you started out? I mean, I what did you thought, think you were going to be doing? Right, what I said was, I'd love to host a talk show, but I, I thought of like all the commercial broadcasters, and I said, I'm not done. I can't do that. I'm not, it would just, it was, kill me and and hurt my soul to have to not necessarily dumb it down but broadcast in a style that wasn't using the top of my brain right but you probably wanted to be like dick cavett that's what i wanted to that be. that would be cool but then i looked at all the npr broadcasters and say i just can't be that oh i see you yeah. know boring so like there was no <laughs> niche for me right and i said you didn't want to be terry gross i would love to be Terry. that's an exception but i saw everyone who had basically there were all these local versions of you know Brian Lair or Larry Mantle. I'm like, well, I don't think I'm getting that job. And you have to know a lot about the local civics. Local, and I know New yeah. York. I guess I could learn, you know, Omaha. So then there's sometimes the other show, the culture show on those stations. I don't, I didn't know if I was getting that. Then there were some national shows. I'm like, I could do a great job, but NPR would never want me to do it. So I'm like, I guess my dream of ever hosting a talk show will never exist based on the market. And then podcasting was invented. I'm like, that's it. That's it. Perfect for me. So I loved it. Do I want to be working this hard? If I wasn't doing the podcast, I'd probably be consuming, you know, something like three quarters of the media I am consuming in it every, every day anyway. Now, like, let's say I'm interested. I just got interested in this article on uh, I think Liptak wrote an article about how Stephen Breyer asked weird questions during Supreme Court sessions. My interest in that would be to say, oh, that's interesting. I'd read that article and there was maybe a link to some study that maybe I'd get into. So now what I have to do is like go to the actual transcripts. My producers are helping with this. Pull the actual sound. Find something interesting to riff on there. But, you know, in general, I'm still interested in most of these things that I'm interested in and will be anyway. Okay, but what do you when you're 60? Like, what do you want to be doing? Like, well, I hope. I mean, I assume a huge staff. I assume Web version three is going to invent something new for me to do. Oh, like crypto? Are you going to be all in crypto? Podcast was invented on Web version two. I'm just waiting for uh, the blockchain to come along and suck me in. Yeah, we'll be on the metaverse. You, you know, when you said right. we're in our early 50s, you're the first person to tell me that. 
I just turned 50 oh, a month from like two days ago. No, it's cool. I got these, oh. I got these Mylar balloons of the five and O oh, still lofting near the, uh, the ceiling of my kitchen. Two days ago. Are you, are, are you Aquarius? No, no, no. Two know. months. Uh, oh, two, two months ago. Yeah, you said yeah. two days ago. Two months and two days. So you're already lying about your age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the balloons um, aren't Mylar. They're taffeta. I don't know what they are. <laughs> well, I, I just want to, first of all, thank you for talking with me, not only here, but in the past, I have been a guest on The Gist, I think, at least once. And I want to tell you, I want to go out letting you know that when I came in, you interviewed me when The Problem With Everything came out. Very problematic book. So I, that was probably you were on your way out um, just just with that. You, you read a passage from that book that is really my favorite passage in the book. And you, you, your instincts were just perfect. I actually don't remember what it was right now, um, but it was really good. It was, was really good writing and it was about a paragraph and you read it so spectacularly and with such verve and enthusiasm and it did not make it into the final edit of the interview. But I, I have always been grateful to you for, uh, for pulling that particular passage out. And it's just a, a testament to your exquisite instincts and i and i you megan you have made my days brighter with your writing and your podcast and uh you know your support and your bravery so thank you well we gotta we gotta stick together anything else we need to know how to find the show is there anything you want us to know no the gist it's on every day check it out i'm not i I usually don't go on at such length (laughs) this is this is twice as long as a normal show okay well this is this is a mini show for me you know (laughs) i know i know I'm, you I'm, do the ring I'm, cycle I'm, of I'm, interviews. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm aiming, aiming for Rogan, Rogan length. You know, one of these days. Anyway, all right, Mike Pesca, many, many thanks, and and good luck. You're welcome, Megan. Take care. That was my interview with Mike Pesca. His daily podcast, The Gist, which he now does independently, is hosted on the Libsyn platform in collaboration with AdvertiseCast, as is this podcast, by the way. And you can find The Gist anywhere you get your podcasts. This is The Unspeakable Podcast. Again, if you'd like to apply for my next personal essay and memoir masterclass on Zoom, and that class will be starting on April 4th and run through May 23rd. Uh, It'll run for eight consecutive Mondays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern time. You can go to daummasterclass.com and apply by March 18th. Also, uh, once again, the paperback edition of my most recent book, The Problem with Everything, My Journey Through the New Culture Wars, is out this week, February 22nd. It includes a new foreword, and if you join this podcast Patreon at the $20 month level or higher, you will get a personal signed copy of this new edition. Yes, I will sign it for you, or for anyone you want, and I will send it to you myself. So you can go to patreon.com slash the unspeakable and join our growing community of listeners. That's it for now. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.